Stay hungry, stay foolish. Trust isn't what we do, it is what results from what we do. Of the thousands of books published each year on leadership, management, self-help and motivation, very few offer practical tools and solutions to the number one challenge in business and in most of our personal lives, trust. With trust, our relationships flourish, our productivity rises, and we have high personal and professional satisfaction. A trust-filled atmosphere lets people take risks, allowing innovation and creativity to thrive. Your team's collective sense of self-worth and purpose becomes a beacon of light for others to follow. The healthy, dynamic atmosphere is contagious and it raises the bar for your entire organization. Higher productivity and lower turnover creates a more profitable business. High trust is the currency of greatness. We welcome founder and president of Peak Solutions, globally renowned speaker, consultant and author of Trustology, Richard Fagerlin. Richard, welcome to the show. Aiden, thanks. Excited to be on. We might jump into it because there's so much to get through. The thing you say is that we believe trust is earned and you throw that out the window, essentially. Yeah. You know, 10 or 15 years ago, I really started paying attention to researching and trying to better understand not just trust, but like the human condition at its core. And the more and more that I observed that. And so I would have these laboratories of consultant projects, or I would have my own family, or I would have groups that I was leading. And one of the things that I found when you get to the real core of the human condition is everyone is wanting to know, uh, do you care for me? Am I valuable? Am I safe? And there's much that's written and done and studied around what makes successful teams and successful organizations and even makes individuals successful. But I believe that the foundation of it is this idea of trust. But if you think about most people's mindset around trust, there's this idea, and you said it, is that trust is something that is earned. And I just couldn't, it just didn't sit well with me that trust is earned. And so one day as I was working with a group, these words just flowed off of my lips. And I was hearing them for the first time that the audience was hearing them. And I said, trust isn't something that you earn, it's something that you give. And if you're not willing to give it, then you're not going to get it they looked at me like I was a foreign alien. And I had two choices at that point. I could either tell them, listen, (laughs) I'm joking. I just heard that for the first time. Or I could take the point of the protagonist and try to defend that point. And over the course of the next couple of years, the more that I looked at this and researched it, I realized that this lie, this fallacy that people believe that trust is something that is earned is really damaging to our relationships. And the other idea that I think is really prevalent is that it takes forever or a lifetime or a long time to build trust and it can be gone in a second. And the reason why I think those are are very dangerous fallacies, it just sets you on the wrong mindset in terms of your responsibility in your relationships with others. So just real briefly, it takes a long time to earn trust and a second to lose it. If you think about that practically, that proposition just from a risk and reward standpoint, makes makes absolutely no sense. If something takes forever and ever and ever, or a long time, and it can be gone in a second, 
then the risk is way greater than any reward we're going to get. So we're not going, we're not going to do that. And so some people will say, well, you know, I'm super trusting to begin with, but then as soon as you do something to break that, then, then I, I, I don't forget that. And, you know, I think that is a conditional trust. So if you really start to break down this idea that trust is earned, if that's true, the only way that you earn trust, Aiden, is by keeping score of some, some sort. And every time we keep score, what we're saying is, I'm waiting for you to do something good so I can give you a tick mark on my scorecard. And when you do that, I'll take a step towards you or I will become more vulnerable. But I will only do this in proportion to the level of trust that I see you giving to me. And so it's this back and forth. And the problem with that is our scorekeeping mechanisms are never consistent. Uh, How we choose to keep score based on how we're feeling or what's going on or what I experienced last from you is so inaccurate. So basically I think the anecdote to this is that we have to surrender the scorecard and we have to take steps towards others. Yeah. And I love that term. You talk about surrounding the scorecard. It reminds me of, you know, when you help somebody out as well, it's, it's one of the most rewarding things to do is actually just genuinely help someone and not expect anything back in return. But so many people get stuck in, well, I did something for that person and I'm still waiting for them to do something back. And I loved uh, when I, this is the first time I saw the surrounding the scorecard because that applies for so many parts of our life, but especially for trust, because you talk about it's not being earned, trust not being earned. So it has to be given and to be, it has to be given without mm-hmm. strings. Yeah. The, the scorecard actually is dangerous in many ways. And the reason that it's, that it's dangerous is that it grows selfishness and selfishness is not a good foundation of relationships work or personal or otherwise and one of the one of the other human conditions that comes in when you live a life with a scorecard is is it does it is you know it is more blessed to give than to receive and anyone who's ever given of themselves knows this and and in our time today we we like to look at society across the world and say how terrible things are but in fact, philanthropy is on an all-time rise. Volunteer hours are at an all-time rise. People are leaving high-paying jobs to do work with meaning in ways that we've never seen before. So, so the human condition is coming alive, and it's full, and it's well, and it's proving this on a large scale. But here's, here's what happens, Aiden, when we do this scorekeeping. Oftentimes, it's done, one, without understanding. It's just It just happens. It's part of our human nature. But as we keep score, what we do is we come to this point where we feel like we've come at least halfway or maybe just past halfway. And so all of a sudden, the human nature is to say, wait a minute, I've come halfway. I'm waiting for the other person to now come halfway. And the problem with that is that I believe relationships go to die in that halfway place. You know, there's plenty of necessary endings. There's plenty of reasons why some relationships, work relationships, personal relationships, uh, family relationships, marriage relationships. There are reasons why some of those relationships should end, and there are necessary endings. However, I believe in this scorekeeping mechanism way more end than need to, or way more have tension than need to, because we get to this halfway point, 
and we say on our side of the equation, I've done all of these things. You know, let me build a billboard for all of the great that I've done, all of the steps and energy that I have taken, right? And I'm waiting for you to come meet me. <laughs> but the problem is, it's also possible that you're sitting over there on your side of the equation thinking the same thing, thinking, look at all that I've done. Look what I've done to come halfway, and I'm not willing to do this. So we're at this stalemate. And that's where relationships fall apart. What I love to tell people is you getting to halfway doesn't impress me. Everyone across the entire world is willing to meet people halfway. What impresses me are those first few steps you take past halfway. That's when we start having really great movement in our relationships. Yeah, and I loved what you do when you speak because you speak globally on this and where you do an exercise that makes the crowd feel quite uncomfortable. Could you share that with us? It's a fantastic exercise. I try to choose when I'm in a, you know, like a, a meeting or keynote setting, try and find someone in the audience that I can pick out. Uh, very recently, I did this, and one of my clients was sitting in the front row. And so when it came time to pick out the person, I actually chose my client which in hindsight now is a, what <laughs> feels like a mistake. So a, uh, a public <laughs> apology for, to Mary Stefan for having embarrassed her in this. But I brought Mary up on stage. And, and again and, now, Mary, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> twice, Mary, twice, uh, God damn it. <laughs> so Mary stands on one end of the stage, and I'm standing on the other. And in front of all of the people, I'm explaining how our relationships work. And so we have this person on one end of our relationship and we're on the other. And what we do is we wait for them to do something good. So we put a check mark on the stage on, on our, on our scorecard and we take a step towards them. So on stage, I take a step towards Mary and then we wait for them to do something else. And we take another step and then we wait for them to do something else. Good. And we take another step. But then here's what happens is somewhere along the way, the people in our lives do something that feels like diminishes our trust or our confidence in them. So we take not only those three steps back, but maybe a couple more. And when you see this played out in front of you, most everyone can identify, A, they can identify a person that they're doing this with now. They can identify, B, people they've done with in the past. And they can, and C, they can identify themselves being the other person, being the Mary in these situations. So these steps are, are important to take. So, you know, I will literally take a piece of paper, rip it up. This is your scorecard, throw it away. The only way to grow this relationship is to take a step and then to take a step. And then slowly across the stage, I'm taking this step and I get over to Mary and I, we got to hug it out. <laughs> Once we get there, you know, hug it out. <laughs> and whisper an apology in her ear. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You call this trust refing, trust refereeing. You have to share, man, the story from the wedding because we're going to talk mainly about the business setting and the organization today, but this is so relevant for relationships of any kind. And you talk about what a pastor said at a wedding of a good friend of yours. Yeah. So I'm sitting, I'm sitting in the church and I'm listening to this wedding and the pastor says to the husband and to the wife, your goal with each other is to take second place to always be willing to take second place to the other. And if both people are willing to take second place, then you have no choice but to surrender the scorecard. And the reason why this is so powerful, and I identify this in my own life, my wife and I just celebrated our own 20th anniversary. And 
I would love to say, congrats. Yeah, thank you. And I would love to say that we get this right all the time. But the fact is, is that oftentimes, you know, our own areas of challenge are where we can learn the most. In that kind of relationship, we tend to think that the other person has to fulfill all of our needs. And there's probably no greater example of that than in a partnership or marriage where you're expecting that. And if we go into our relationships where instead of expecting that the other party, the company, the organization, the leader, the spouse, the partner is going to meet and fulfill all of my needs, rather to say, I'm not going to take fifth place, but I'm willing to let you take first place so that I can take second and and you do the same. That really changes the mindset of those relationships. I thought about this is so powerful, man, but also that, you know, the other thing is when, when you bring children in, you don't take just second place, you, you become third, fourth, fifth place. And it's actually an honor to do that, really, if you position it that way, if you frame it that way in your mind. Yeah, it's a great honor. We might move on to um, the organization because you quite rightly tell us that trust is the bedrock of every great relationship, whether it be in the office or not, but that the more high-performing the team, the bigger the trust required, which makes total sense to people. But this is not a blind trust. You call it eyes-wide-open trust. The very first thought when, when I share with people that trust is something that is given, the very first thought that goes to their mind is ways that they will be taken advantage of. And so there's a disclaimer that's really important, Aiden, to share. And that disclaimer is that you don't just come into this blind and you don't just walk dead arms open into a challenging situation, but you also don't stand at the crossroad of a challenge in business and look to your right and left and right and left and right and left and just constantly be looking and and never proceed across the road. You have to come and you look strong to the left, strong to the right and walk straight across. Or in the UK, maybe you look to the right first and then to the left. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have a waiver for this is not the safe cross code, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, however you safely cross the road. But what you do is you just make a couple of looks and then you cross with confidence. And and this is this is really, really important. And you know, speaking of family and children, like some sometimes the best ways to communicate these difficult principles are to take our personal life because we all have a personal life. Our our organizational and our work and our professional lives might be different, but most of our personal lives have some similarities. And so my wife and I do, we have four boys. Uh, and as, as we've been raising these boys, there's this, there's this idea that how can we, how can we, how can we let them go cross the streets of their life with confidence? And do we let them, you know, what, what do you let them do? And when they were younger and they were playing in our front yard and the balls would roll into the street and they would go running after them, uh, that's not safe because cars are coming by. And so we just said, you're no longer able to play in the front yard. But here's the thing. We didn't say that because we didn't trust them. We said that because we are, we're good parents and we discern that it's not safe. So in our relationships, we need to think about that. Sometimes we have to put a protection or a boundary in place. And, but the boundary is not because we don't trust someone. It's because this makes sense. I was just working with a retailer and I used the example of you have surveillance systems throughout all of your retail stores. 
And you do this uh, not so that you can catch bad guys or you can find people that are stealing. You're, you're actually having this huge trust that they're not going to steal. This stuff isn't going to happen. But it doesn't make sense to just blindly say that. Like we want to have a protectionism and do have this surveillance for a situation when that trust is broken so that you can go and analyze that. And so we don't let it control us but yet we're not completely blind to it. So in the situation with my children, we put them into our backyard and there's a six foot fence all the way around the yard and they can play there and everything's safe. But at some point they raise to an age where we have to then extend those boundaries. We just dropped our oldest son off at his first year of university. And you know, you talk about the difference between protecting them in your backyard to now you're free to experience the world in all of your own decisions. That doesn't just happen overnight. There's a progression that takes place. So in this idea of we're not going to just be eyes wide shut, we're going to have our eyes wide open and we're going to proceed with confidence as we move into each of these steps. That really resonated with me because I have two boys as well. And I tell them stories where the world is safe all the time. I don't want them to go and trust anybody. I don't want to plant a seed for life that you have to watch out. And I studied French in college and the story Little Red Riding Hood is actually about don't wander off the path. It's not safe. You need to stay on the beaten path. And if you think of innovation, it's like so counter to the idea of innovation. And I love what you did there where when time came, you let the seed be planted to go, you can set across the road safely, but you can cross the road and I trust you too. And and what that does to a relationship, like I was thinking about this in, in our, in, in the business I work in, the, the trust factor is massive. And when the trust factor is that big, you want to reward it back to the people who instilled that trust in the business. You, it has a kind of a, a counterintuitive as long as you've hired right, that is, that's the caveat, but you will hire right. And then you just want to reward it. You want to go, listen, I'll go the extra mile because of your trust in a way. And I just think it works so well, which is why I was so attracted to the book. There's a brilliant concept you talk of. And I was told once as a child that once you say sorry, there's nothing somebody can actually say. So if you make a mistake and you say sorry, you actually disempower the other person and you talk of a great one and this is i suppose about building trust when somebody has actually damaged that trust or hurt you in some way that when you punish others by making them feel hurt or you're hurt until they feel sufficiently guilty in your eyes you're holding them hostage i'd love if you shared that idea i don't think people do this on purpose but what ends up happening is we are holding someone hostage because of one our our lack of forgiveness or our ability to you know really have a uh, the humility of of saying that you're sorry and in that hostage standpoint there's really no way for us to grow forward in our relationship so this often will take place where we use blame uh, accusation. We do not assume the best of others' intentions. And this is where politics and and um, silos in organizations really come into play. So we're, really tr- we're not really trying to figure out what is the problem, how do we solve it, and how do we move forward. What we're trying to figure out is what did you do so that the attention is off of me and onto you? 
And we work with, with executives, um, C-level executives all over the world. And one of the, like, there's this small secret that should be let out is that the humility of saying, I messed up, I'm sorry, can you forgive me, is one of the most effective resources and tools that you can ever have. There's a quote by an anonymous person that says, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. You know, when we have this bitterness of unforgiveness in ourselves, we're not punishing someone else. We're punishing ourselves. And yet, here's the, the terrible irony of this. When we're willing to offer forgiveness to someone else for what they've done, the gift isn't to them. The gift is to us. Because we no longer have this burden of the frustration that they have. Yeah. I, I have, you know, I'm sure each of us have many, many examples. But early in my career, I was uh, 24, 25, and I was leading this session for our organization. I worked for a global organization, 30-some thousand employees. We were Fortune 120-something. And I was leading this, this session where we, we would go around the country and meet with some of our key, key suppliers and customers. And we were just trying to endear them to our organization by helping them understand us better. And I led that process. And one of the things that we did was have the CEO come in and speak to them. And he would drop in whenever he was available. And so he always knew in, during my sessions, I needed 10 minutes at the end to show at this, in this situation, I needed to show a video to close the session out. And so he's speaking and it's coming at 11 minutes left and then 10 minutes left and then eight minutes left. And at six minutes left, he looks at me and he says, Richard, how are we doing on time? Knowing he needed to leave me 10 minutes. And I said, we're good. Just, you know, absolutely fine. You know, wrap this up and we'll, we'll be good. And he says to the group, there's hundreds of people. He says, See, that's what I'm talking about. That kind of kiss ass employee is not what we need. He needs 10 minutes to show a video, but he's not, he doesn't have the courage to tell me this. So he says this in front of all of these people. Now, oh, what's the alternative? God, <laughs> it's terrible, right? Now, what's the alternative? I say, no, actually, you've went way past your time. You've screwed up the whole session, and I can't complete what I need to complete. No, the right thing to do is to say, you're fine. I wasn't kissing butt. I was trying to make best of the situation, right? And just telling this story tr triggers up all kinds of emotions. This is 20 years ago. And so, so I have this moment. This is, these are defining moments. And we all have these defining moments. You know, the session's over. We exit everyone. They move on to the next thing. I go, we had like a ready room where we were keeping all of our stuff. I go back in there. My boss, some of my colleagues are all back there. And their eyes are wide open, like looking at how am I going to respond? And there's only a couple of responses. One is to fall on the ground in a puddle of tears. <laughs> and the other is to be super angry and upset. And I remember in my head having this moment saying, this is a defining moment in my life and how I respond right now matters. And I just, I took the moment right then to say, I forgive Harry. He's only trying to protect himself. I have way more to lose by a bad reaction than he does. And so I need to move on. And I moved on and I was very much a challenging time. And it, you know, it's not that it didn't hurt, but in that moment, you have a chance of what to do. And there's been hundreds of moments since then. 
And I think that that's what people need to recognize is that we have to understand what really is at stake and how important is it? And can we offer that? You know, it's not that I'm a great individual. You know, a lot of how I think and how I believe is a result of how I grew up and what my parents influenced me. And, you know, my personal faith has something to do with this. And I believe that grace to others is an important thing. And not everyone has that natural ability. But I'll say this, if there's one silver bullet that encompasses all of this trustology topic, the silver bullet is give people the benefit of the doubt and don't believe that you know their intentions. And if you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt, let's just presume that their intentions are positive, that they aren't negative. And if we can lead with that, I just think we're capturing a lot of rights in an area where we could go in a lot of wrongs. It's like the analogy people use of somebody cuts you off when you're driving home and you go and tell everybody, oh, this guy cut me off and this guy, the person who cut you off has no concept that they even cut you off. It's the intention impact gap, isn't it? Like their intention is to get home quickly. The impact on you is, oh, this guy cut me off. And all day you're holding on to it all the time. It's one that's stuck with me. But we'll move on because we've loads to get through here, man. So that's really us. That's our side. So forgiveness is not about excusing bad behavior. You say it's about simply about letting yourself move on. But what about the other side of the bridge, about the other people? How do we build trust in them? So really there's two sides of relationship equations. And we are the common denominator in all of our relationships. And so there's this contradiction of sorts, really. So part of the the keys to a trustworthy relationship is we have to do everything we can do on our side to be trustworthy. And we we can't I can't be responsible for you. However, I do need to do things that make it either easier for you to trust me or easier for you even to be trustworthy. So I can only control my side of the equation, but I do have to reach across the aisle and do things that help you see me as trustworthy or for you to come over and be trustworthy as well. And really, this is the idea of, of um, lots of rules and policies. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. And so what we really need to do is increase our relationship. So the closer that you get to someone, the more that you understand about them, the more that you expect that their intentions are positive, the easier that this becomes. And the, the, the ideas and principles here are, are more ideas and principles that people see and observe you do and then makes it easier for them to do than it is for you to create this list of if you do A, B, and C, then we're going to have a better relationship. So it's having the, I think it's having the, the confidence and the consistency of doing the right thing, even when it doesn't feel comfortable. Brilliant. And you end each kind of section. So there's three major sections and you end each one with these discovery questions. And I'd love if you shared some of the questions we can ask ourselves that will kind of start getting us thinking about the trust and the trust factor within companies. Well, I think that it's important to be honest about the challenges that we have within trust. So, you know, some of the questions that are important to ask are who has or when have you felt like you've had a betrayal of trust in the past? You know, really being understanding about where these challenges have been, they explain some of the triggers that we have in the future. Oftentimes, a challenge or a trigger that I have with you isn't a challenge or a trigger with you, it's a challenge or a trigger with someone in my past that has come back up to revisit itself. So I think 
doing a postmortem on that is really important. Um, I think that asking ourselves, how does that affect the way that you interact with others? So thinking back in my past about how I have uh, observed trust, what this has looked like, um, the, the, the idea here that there are so many of these lies or mistruths or mis, misbeliefs around trust, I think actually, actually asking ourselves how, how prevalent have those ideas been in our life are really important. Brilliant. And you talk about the trust still, Richard, as well. So three key ingredients that we need to consider when we're talking about trust. Yeah, Aiden, this might be the most important part of our entire discussion. And that is because nobody comes into the discussion about trust empty-handed. Nobody comes in with no life experience. So we all have our own definition of what trust is. And for the, for the most part, People's definition of trust is something that looks like a zero-sum game. So it's either you have it or you don't. I trust you or I don't. I have trust in in a political system or I don't. I have trust in an organization or I don't. I have trust in a leader or I don't. And and I want to reshape the definition of trust. So so our definition of trust is my confidence in my relationship with others. My confidence in my relationships with others. So those that are listening, think about people that are in your life and think about, do I have a high confidence or do I have a low confidence? Forget the word trust for a moment. And so here's where the three-legged stool comes in. Our confidence in our relationship with others or trust is built on three main things. It's built on integrity, it's built on competence, and it's built on compassion. And if I may, I'll, I'll just unpackage those for a, a quick second. Yeah, For sure. So integrity, when we're looking at someone and do I trust someone, I'm looking at their integrity. And integrity is not just how honest are they. Uh, the root form of the word integrity and the root form of the word integer are the same. And an integer is a whole number and integrity is about wholeness. So someone with integrity does what they say, say what they do. They act with integrity in the same way in all areas of their life. And so we're looking at people, do I have high confidence in your integrity or do I have low confidence in your integrity? So that's one leg of this three-legged stool. The next leg is competence. Competence is no longer just the knowledge, skills, or abilities. In our environment today, it is, do I have the ability to acquire knowledge and can I broker that knowledge to other people? So when I think of someone and whether or not I trust them, do I have high confidence in their competence or do I have low confidence in their competence? And then the last one, probably the most difficult of the three to quantify, is compassion. And compassion's not about are we gonna, you know, hug it out and do I do I love you? Compassion is do I have a care and an understanding of where you're coming from? Do I have empathy? And so one of the greatest ways to put this trust model to work is to think of someone that you say you don't trust or that you have trust issues with. And so the question I have, if you think about this person that you, I, I don't trust this person. Now, by the way, this is someone that actually you would like to be able to trust or that you want to work with because the people that you don't want to trust and that you don't want to work with, well, then we probably should just weed that out of our lives. So this doesn't apply to that. This is for those that we really do care to have a relationship with. And so now if we think about it, is it that you don't trust them? Or is it that you have low confidence in their integrity? 
Is it that you don't trust them or you have low confidence in their compassion or in their competence? And now you have a really effective diagnostic tool to see where we have these trust breakdowns. And you call this the trust factor. If we think about these three, not so much in, in terms anymore of a of a stool, but of a Venn diagram, where those three intersect and overlap, that's our trust factor. And that's a diagnosis tool we use then to look at our teams and see where we're lacking, which Venn, which circle of the Venn diagram is weak. Correct. And Aiden, it goes both ways. And so what I want to look at is I want to think about let's just say it's you and I that we're evaluating. I want to evaluate how do I view you in terms of integrity, but I want to also think about how might you evaluate me in terms of integrity. And and when there's a gap between how we see each other, whether it's a positive or a negative gap from my perspective, I want to know that. And I want to explore that. And now we have something where we really have some handles that we can put our hands on and drive this relationship based on those very three simple yet very powerful diagnostic tools around trust you share your own experience here in your own company as well and you say i'm going to throw a phrase out to you that might spark this next part which is shoot that ain't nothing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) so don't be a stan man don't be a stan shoot that ain't nothing i've got this problem i think that you know i feel like i can add value to any conversation and any idea you know this is the innovation show and i feel like i'm a very innovative person and i always you know, I've, I want to ex- ex- exhibit creativity in everything that I do. And so I, I'm also a believer in you can make anything better. No matter what you do, no matter how it's done, it can be done better. My children are athletes. My, my son is, 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 a, is a long-distance runner. Uh, and, and so after every race, there's always something to deconstruct about what could have gone better or what could have you done. <laughs> and what happens is in my own team, when I do this, this becomes this factor of, well, why should I contribute a hundred percent effort if Richard's always going to add something to it? And when you're a contributor and all you're throwing is ideas, maybe that makes sense. But when you're a leader, you have to understand the coefficient that your words have and say, sometimes what I need to do is it's more important that the team has ownership and buy-in into something that's already great without having to add something to it all the time. And so in this, in, in my, my example, my trust factor with my team was shrinking because I was constantly trying to make it better when in fact they felt like I was micromanaging and minimizing their ideas. Yeah, and, and one of the ways you tell this is it's even the rephrasing of how you ask, how you might input, you might ask questions instead. Well, here's the thing. You can tell how smart someone is by their answers, but you can tell how wise they are by their questions. And really, I think today what we're seeking, and this is a really important point, what we're seeking today um, as leaders, as innovators, just as people who want to do good in the world, uh, we don't want to seek to show how smart we are. We want to seek to show how wise we are. And the, the pursuit of wisdom in all of this is really important. The beginning of wisdom is seeking wisdom. And wisdom is one of those things that doesn't come with a stroke of a pen. It doesn't come with a system or a process. It only comes through birthdays, through time and experiences, and also it comes through challenges and pain and frustration. Fantastic. That's personal piece is key because we didn't hone in too much on that but you talk about truly knowing your people knowing their triggers knowing that 
you know, we talk about personalization on websites and stuff like that, but personalization in person is one of the most important things that we can do to build trust. Yeah. I mean, the people want to be known and they want to be known uniquely and it's our job to do that. And this can look different ways for different people. This doesn't always have to be sitting down and understanding everything about everyone's personal life. It's just trying to figure out how can I, as a leader, help you to become more of who you were designed to become so that you can thrive, that you can operate in your highest point of contribution, that you can contribute the most, and that you feel valued. And working towards that is is the high end of leadership and of relationship currency. There's a huge accountability and looking at oneself in the mirror factor that you talk about through the book. One of the key ones I thought, and one of a, a great concept you come up with is this idea of a personal CPA. Yeah, a personal CPA. CPA stands for cause, participate, and allow. So if we think about what's the, the, the mode of the day, the mode of the day across the entire world is to take my fingers and point it to others and say, not me, this, you're the one that, that did this wrong, or to place blame, or to have accusation. And so a, a personal CPA says, no matter what happens in my life, I'm either causing it, participating, or allowing. No matter what results are going on in my team, I'm causing, participating, and allowing. And so you have frustration, you have challenge, you have bad results. Every one of us is either causing, participating, or allowing. And when you, when you identify what it is that you're doing and you look in the mirror at what you're doing, then you have an internal locus of control is what we talk about versus trying to focus on things that you have no control over. And closely aligned to this, and this is one I often struggle with, is gossip. So gossip in the workplace, the water cooler moments. The reason I said I I struggle with this is oftentimes if you walk away from a gossiping person or somebody who wants to unload, you may be perceived as being unsupportive or a lone wolf or something like that. But when you do it, you want to take away any kind of fuel from that fire. And you talk about ways that we can actually control that and and almost using the CPA model. The thing about gossip is oftentimes we don't know we're in it until we're fully in it. You know, especially those, those of us who want to be helpful, who have chosen careers where, and, and work where our primary highest point of contribution is, is helping others. And so once we're in it, and you've identified you're in it, one of the quick things to do is to say, all right, wait a minute, time out. Let me just use this CPA model, number one, and say, are you causing, participating, or allowing this? Are we talking about someone or are we talking about a solution? You know, if we're talking about another person with another person and we're not part of the solution, that's a that's a great definition of gossip. And gossip is kind of like a weed. Uh, if you're a gardener or a farmer or you just have ever spent any time understanding the nutrients of soil weeds weeds take very little to grow and what they do is they take away the nutrients from what you really want to plant and gossip does the same thing the good that you're trying to accomplish a lot of energy is being taken into this gossip versus being put into the solution and so uh, you know as a as a leader myself and as a consultant to organizations one of the tools that i use often is i will say First of all, are you needing to vent or do you want to solve this problem? So 
one we can identify right now. I just need to vent. People sometimes people need to vent, and now maybe that takes it away from gossip. To I just need to get this off my chest. And at the end of the venting, you can say, "All right, do you want to do something about this, or do you not?" The other step that you can take is to say, "All right, Aiden, you're talking about Lisa, and you have this frustration with Lisa, and I want you to solve this problem with Lisa. You need to solve this problem with Lisa, and you need to go directly to her. And the problem here is, I don't want to solve this, but you have now brought me into it, and so now I'm part of this. So I want to give you the right and the opportunity to solve this problem with Lisa." Here's what I'm going to do. I'm meeting with her next Tuesday. On next Tuesday, I'm going to ask her about this problem with you. But that gives you between now and then to go introduce this to her yourself. But if you haven't, by the time I'm meeting with her on Tuesday, I am obligated to do this myself. Nice. And so, yeah, it's an opportunity for personal ownership for both of us. Closely aligned again is this great story you tell about it's not about the coffee. Well, it's not about the coffee. It's about getting to the root cause. Now, listen, if, it, if anybody cares about coffee more than me, I want to meet that person. <laughs> I love caffeine. I love a good cup of coffee and espresso drink. Um, but I had this client who was so frustrated about this employee who will not refill the coffee pot after he takes the last cup of coffee. Now, listen, I understand how frustrating it can be to not have a cup of coffee, but I'm, I'm trying to help him understand that the issue is not the coffee, it's it's something bigger. And every time we work in this circle, back to, okay, so now, Mike, what's the real issue? And he'd say, well, you know, ultimately, he's not refilling the coffee. I'm like, no, no, like, what's really at stake, and what's he doing, and what's at the root? And time and time again, Mike comes to this coffee. And so finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And I stood up and I said, dang it, Mike, it's not about the coffee. <laughs> and 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 I think that, you know, in my own life, I have issues that I see it's about the coffee and we all have issues where we think it's that, but it's not, it's something deeper and bigger. And so we really need to get to what this is about is what's the root cause of the problem? What's really at the foundation of the issue? Are we making the issue about the issue or are we making it about some sort of symptom that's related to the issue? And it's a great, really understandable one. There's a key concept you talk about that I came across quite a long time ago with Alan Watts, the British philosopher who brought kind of Eastern philosophies to the US. He's brilliant. If anybody wants to hear him on YouTube, etc., he's passed away. But he talks about contrast in life being a good thing. And you talked about this idea of managing tensions in life. And it's really, really important. If you, if we understand this, I think it can lead to having a much happier life and a happier business life. Yeah, we live in constant tensions, yet we want to go push this easy button that gives us a perfect answer. So we have this binary thinking. Politics is a great example of this. You're for something. Well, if you're for something, then obviously you're against everything else. And the complexity that's really there is hard to understand. And so anytime, uh, you know, if you're looking at your watch face, if you get to six by going to counterclockwise and I get to six by going clockwise, anytime we really wrap ourselves all the way around something, that's, that's not the right way to arrive at the solution. So here's an example. We all want a clear boss. We want a clear boss. We want a boss that's going to be clear, that's going to give us good direction, that's going to help craft a future, that's going to get uh, resources and results for us. But we also want a boss that's flexible. So 
which is it? Do you want a clear boss or do you want a flexible boss? And most everyone shakes their head. And so as a leader, what I, what I find myself doing is I'm very flexible. And so because I'm flexible, my team is frustrated because I'm not providing clear enough direction. And I'm not helping everyone to understand what's going on. And I'm not fighting for resources because I'm so flexible. So what I find, what, what I do, unfortunately, is I say, well, the answer then is I must be more clear. So then I become clear. Well, because I'm so clear, I'm dogmatic and I'm direct and I'm not being open to options and I'm not being empowering. So I think, well, the answer then is I must be flexible. And the fact is, is that if we're going to manage the tensions, that's an inhale being clear and an exhale is being flexible. And we have to figure out how can we inhale and how can we exhale and how can we understand there are persistent tensions and the tensions are good. The tensions are what allow us to be successful. So instead of finding that this is the answer, now I'm not saying there are no absolutes. There are plenty of absolutes. This is not what this point is. The point is there are persistent tensions. And when we find persistent tensions in our life, we must figure out how to inhale and exhale in a good rhythm between these tensions so that we can add value and add life. It's a fantastic principle, man. I think, you know, even if someone got that from the show, it would be great. There, there's one last one I'd love to finish on. It's an exercise you did with your kids that I'm definitely going to do with my kids. And it's this toothpaste exercise. It's an easy exercise. Here's what, here's what happened. I'm an object lesson person. Uh, my, my kids are, are full victim to my laboratory at all times. I think they're my, they're, they're my family's my greatest laboratory. <laughs> so there was a point at time when my older two boys, who are two years apart, were just at each other. And they were, you know, communicating in this, this, this bile and, and at the time I felt like, you know, terrible way. So I wanted to teach them a lesson. So I brought them out to the, um, onto our back patio and I set two plates down and I put a tube of toothpaste on each plate. And I said, I want you to race right now and see how fast can you empty this tube of toothpaste onto the plate. Ready, go. So they <laughs> squirt this toothpaste onto the plate and they're arguing over who wins. And I said, well, wait a minute, guys. Actually, that's not the, that's not the contest. Here's the contest. You're going to race to see who can put the toothpaste back in the tube the fastest. Ready, go. And they're looking at me and they're trying and they're putting it in their hand. And one of them reaches down and <laughs> puts a bunch of the toothpaste in his mouth and starts squirting it into the tube. And it's just a hot mess. <laughs> And so the object lesson here is our words are like toothpaste. It's so easy for us to squeeze it out, but it's really hard for us to take them back. This doesn't mean that we walk on eggshells and we pause over every word. It is that we understand our words matter. And based on our position, our words actually have these coefficients. As a parent, my words mean more than the mailman's words or a teacher's or a coach's words mean more. A leader's words mean more. So we need to pay attention to what those, what the impact of those words are and understand it's hard to take back some of the things that we say. Beautiful, man. Well, I have to say thank you for sharing the Trustology toothpaste with the world. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Before we finish up, it'd be great to hear where we can learn more because I know the book gives frameworks. We only touched on a tiny part of it today. It gives frameworks, it gives self-assessment tools, and it's such an enjoyable and accessible read. Where can people find out more about you and Peak Solutions? There's two websites, peak, S-O-L, peak, sort for peaksolutions.com. 
is our, our business website. You can find out about our organizational consulting business there. And then richardfaggerlin.com is my website. On there are tons of resources for the book. There's actually a toolkit that allows you to download. Uh, there's an online trustology program. It allows you to download uh, the first session of that, and it allows you to download some tools and resources, some assessments, and that's a great place to grab uh, some quick information. And of course, you can hit me up at Twitter at Richard Fagerlin. Founder and president of Peak Solutions, globally renowned speaker, consultant, and author of the fabulous trustology, Richard Fagerlin. Thanks for joining us.